0: Let's pray. God we again thank you for who you are. You are a great and mighty and marvelous God. You yeah you're not a you are the great and mighty and marvelous God. And we are we are humbled and amazed that you would call us your own. Thank you. Thanks for this time that we have to gather together, God. Thank you for um, your presence here with us. And we ask uh, that we would um, now be able to quiet our hearts before you and that we would be, you would prepare our hearts, God, to receive your word, to hear from you, to learn about you, uh, and to um, hopefully be changed, God. We pray that this would be a moment that you draw each of us close to you. We pray, God, that you would speak to our hearts. We pray that you would... um, convict those who need to be convicted, that you would encourage those who need to be encouraged. And I pray, God, that it would just simply be your words flowing through me in this moment. pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Uh, Once again, good afternoon. 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 I I got nervous that it was evening, but it's not evening yet. I don't know. Is evening five o'clock or six o'clock? Six Six o'clock. Yeah. All right, we are, uh, we're in Mark, and so I'm going to get right into our teaching text for tonight. Mark chapter 14, uh, I'm going to do verses 1 to 11. Mark 14, verses 1 through 11. I'll give you 10 or 12 seconds to pull it up. This is what it says, Mark 14, starting in verse 1. It says, it was now two days before the Passover Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, we are moving more and more to a cashless society. Now, I am not, uh, the, I'm not here to make economic predictions. I'm not making societal predictions. I'm just speaking from personal experience. Uh, we are using cash less and less. And I can see heads nodding already that people agree, uh, particularly so in the younger generations. Uh, we don't like cash. We don't wanna to have to carry it around. It's an inconvenience, and we got too many other ways to pay. We got our credit cards, we got our debit cards, or, or we got our parents' credit cards, which is even better. Uh, we can put those on our phones. We got Apple Pay, we got Google Pay. I don't know, we probably got Meta Pay and Salesforce.com Pay, and you know, whatever, uh, whatever pay. Um, we've got uh, Venmo, and PayPal, and Zelle and Cash App and uh, many others, uh, we are moving more and more. We just, use, we just don't use Cash a lot, which in some ways, I mean, obviously it's convenient, uh, but in some ways is a little bit of a tragedy because we are losing, in front of our eyes, one of the great institutions of our country. See, for many years... Every time you went to pay for something in a gas station or a convenience store or a grocery store or a dry cleaners or a restaurant, wherever it was, right there next to the cash register on the counter would be a little dish. Sometimes it was molded plastic and had a nice pre-made sign on it. Sometimes it was a styrofoam cup cut in half with a three by five index card taped to it. But in each of those cases, it said something like, take a penny, give a penny. And, and again, for those who are in kind of the younger, yep, there it is. You know it, you know it. I can, I'm, I can see the nostalgia washing over all of you as you look at that take a penny, give a penny dish. Um, and the way that that worked, this is kind of for some of the younger folks in here who might not understand what this is, is if you were paying with cash, and the total came up to $5.03, you could give the cashier $6, and then receive $0.97 back in coins. But most of us younger generation, we don't even know how to make change like that, and so we're not even sure if we get the right amount of change back. But there would be a little dish right there where you could just give the cashier $5, and take three pennies out of the dish, and your transaction was complete. You kept all your crisp bills. Likewise, if you bought something with cash and the total came out to $5.98, you could give the cashier $6, and you would receive two pennies back. And you had a choice to make in that moment. Do I wanna squirrel away these two pennies somewhere in my pockets, only to find them you know, three years from now, because I've forgotten about them, or to lose them in my couch cushions, or I could put these two pennies in the take a penny, give a penny dish and help someone else out later. Here's the thing about the, uh, the take a penny, give a penny. It tells you a lot about who a person is. You give me five minutes watching the, watching the cash register and the take a penny, give a penny dish, and I can tell you a lot about the people who are paying for their things, right? Now, I'm going to tell you something that's going to appall you, and it should. When I was in high school, I had a friend. Every time we were in a store that had to take a penny, give a penny dish, he took every penny out of the dish. <laughs> what, kind of sick, what kind of sick person does that? <laughs> now, 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 compare that, contrast that, excuse me, with uh, last two weeks ago, my eight-year-old was with her grandmother, my mom. They were at a thrift store down the street from us. My eight year old was buying something with her own money. She doesn't have Apple Pay, she doesn't have Google Pay, she has cash, probably came from grandma. And her total came out to like 503 or something like that. I don't know exactly. No, there's no, there's no take a penny, give a penny dish, right? The, the woman working the register pulled out her own purse, took her own wallet out of her own purse, took three pennies out of her own wallet and put those in the cash register to make the transaction complete. You can tell a lot about a person by watching what they do at the take a penny, give a penny. So, can I ask you this morning, (laughs) 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 when I was growing up, uh, one of the major, uh, like, we had a few movies in my family that we watched just dozens of times and really affected the culture of my family, and one of them was a movie called What About Bob, and... (laughs) Uh, I've seen it at one point. My younger brother could almost quote the whole movie start to finish Not saying that's something to be proud of But we watched it a lot and there's this what about bob is a movie about a a guy who has severe mental health Struggles and his therapist and at one point early in the movie his therapist asked him if he's married And he says i'm divorced and the therapist says do you want to talk about that and bob says well There are two kinds of people in this world Those who like neil diamond and those who don't my ex-wife loves him I'm here to tell you this morning, there are two kinds of people in this world. There are takers and there are givers. And so the question I want to ask you this morning is, are you a taker or are you a giver? The title of this message is give and take, because that's what the text that we're about to look at is all about. There are givers and there are takers everywhere in life. Some people come to that take a penny dish and they're like, this is my opportunity to take some money for myself, free money. And let's, let's be honest, the way the economy is looking right now, the way inflation is looking right now, I could use some more take a penny dishes in my life. But there are others who come to that dish and they're like, this is my opportunity to help someone. This is my opportunity to bless someone. This is my opportunity to give up a few pennies that I don't need or want that might help someone else later on down the road. There are givers and there are takers everywhere in life. Whatever, uh, whatever area of life you orbit in right now, there are takers and there are givers. If you are in healthcare, if you are in medicine, there are people who go into medicine, they go into healthcare because why? They wanna take. They want to make a name for themselves, they wanna make a big career, they wanna make a bunch of money. And there are other people who go into medicine because they genuinely love people and they love to help people heal and they wanna help them. If you're in business, this one's probably skewed to one side a little bit, but there are people in business who are there for themselves. They're there to make as much money as they can, to, to, to get as much power as they can, as much notoriety as they can. But there are some people in business, and I think this is actually more true in the Bay Area than some other places. There are people in business who genuinely believe their good service or product that their business provides is actually going to help people, and they're motivated by doing that. If you're in academia, there are. I've had, we've all had professors like this. like We've all had teachers like this where it's like I was an annoyance. Not me personally, well, maybe me sometimes, but the students are an annoyance because the teacher or the professor is there to get tenure and to make a name for themselves and to do research and to grow their career. There are other people who are in education because they genuinely love helping students learn. It just, we could go, right? We could go on and on. Sports, nobody likes playing with a taker on their team. Everybody loves playing with a giver on their team. In our families, there are takers and there are givers. In the church, There are takers and there are givers. And the question I want to ask you this morning, and I just, if I be really real and transparent with you, I'm more inclined to take a penny than I am to give a penny, but are you a taker or are you a giver? And that is uh, really what I think the heartbeat of what these 11 verses are that we're about to study in the book of Mark. So as we come to Mark chapter 14, verses one through 11, we've just gone through a huge transition in the gospel. We are done with kind of the story of Jesus' life, teaching, and experiences with his disciples. Starting in 14, chapter 1, there is one thing and one thing only left to do in the gospel of Mark, and that is for Jesus to go to the cross. And so his teaching is over. Now we are headed for his, the, what is known as the passion narrative. And as we make that transition, wouldn't you know, our good buddy Mark is going to give us one more of our favorite literary devices that he uses. Yes, <laughs> love it when you talk back to me. We find in Mark chapter 14, verses one through 11, we find another Markin sandwich. These are all over this gospel. And as I said, the last time we studied it, I hope 10 years from now, you are reading the gospel of Mark and you read a passage and you're like, Mark talked about something, then he talked about something else. Then he went back to the first thing he talked about and you're like, Pastor Gary told me about this. It's a Mark and sandwich. And what we know in a Mark and sandwich is that the meat, or if you're a vegetarian, the tofu <laughs> in between the bread is the key to understanding both parts of the sandwich. And that's exactly what we have here. And what we find in Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11, is Mark is contrasting two different ways that we come to Jesus. He is showing us two different ways that we come to Jesus. And those are my two points today. So we're just going to look at these two, uh, two ways that we approach Jesus and call it a, an evening. The first one is this. Some of us come to Jesus looking to take. Some of us come to Jesus looking to take. And so if we look first at the bread of this mark and sandwich, it's in verses 1 and 2 and verses 10 and 11. And what do we hear in verses 1 and 2? It's uh, about to become the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Verse one, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. So what has been implicit since Mark chapter 11, when Jesus arrived in Jerusalem at his triumphal entry, Mark chapter 11, 12 and 13, we got all this conflict between Jesus and the political and religious leaders in Jerusalem, what has been implicit becomes explicit in Mark 14, verse 1, when Mark tells us the chief priests and the scribes want to kill him. They're so unhappy with Jesus. They're so offended by him. They're so intimidated by him. They are like, he can no longer live. We need to kill him. And then we get this beautiful story of this woman and the anointing. And we'll get to that in point two. But after we go through the story of the woman, we get down to verses 10 and 11, and we come to Judas, one of his disciples. Uh, verse 10, Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. So we got the chief priests, the scribes, and Judas, and they are all approaching Jesus with what? They're looking to take. They're looking to take. Now, here's here's how I want to flesh this out. What did they have in common? They all wanted something from Jesus. They all were coming to Jesus, looking for what they could get out of it. So we've talked about this a lot, and I don't want to beat a dead horse, but it's, it's critical to understanding what's going on here. The chief priests and the scribes were expecting a Messiah. Jesus says, I am the Messiah. And they're like, yeah, but you're not the Messiah that we expected. See, they expected the Messiah to come from the line of David, which Jesus does. Remember, David was the greatest king in Israel's history. And when David reigned, Israel was the premier nation in the ancient Near East. It was the most wealthy David and Solomon in their reigns. It was the most powerful, wealthiest. The temple was amazing. People came from all over to see its beauty. The gospel of the gospel of the old Testament, as John Piper says, was a come and see gospel. Come and see how beautiful God is because of what he has done for his people, Israel. And when we get to the new Testament, that is no longer the case. They are no longer even a sovereign nation. They're occupied by Rome. They're scattered all over. And they expected the Messiah to come from the line of David and be like David. They expected him to be a a warrior a militaristic and political leader who would raise up the nation of Israel again, who would drive out the Romans, who would restore their sovereignty as a nation, restore their former glory as the premier nation in the world. And Jesus comes saying, you know, I'm humble, I'm going to die. And they're like, you're not giving us what we wanted. And so you can't possibly be the Messiah that we are waiting for. We don't know as much about Judas. I mean, we know Judas's name, we hear about him a lot, but when you actually read the gospels, we don't learn a ton about who he is, why he did what he did. There are a lot of theories. Some scholars think that he might have been a zealot, which was a, a party back then who were looking to violently overthrow Rome. But clearly, whatever his position, he had spent 3 years living, working doing ministry beside Jesus. He had been looking for something from Jesus that Jesus had not given him. And so when we get to this point, the chief priests, the scribes and Judas have all come to the same place. And this is it. This is what they have in common. They all have unmet expectations. They all had expectations of Jesus. They came to Jesus looking to take what can you do for me? And those expectations had not been met And so now they decided since Jesus didn't give them what they needed, they needed to take something from him. And what was that? His life. They all had unmet expectations and it caused them to decide they needed to kill Jesus. Some of us come to Jesus looking to take. Uh, One of the most iconic and enduring uh, presidential inauguration speeches came in 1961. Can someone name who was inaugurated? Nicely done. It's from John F. Kennedy, youngest president ever elected, also won the popular vote by one of the narrowest margins in history. And so as he stepped up to the podium in January of 1961 to address the nation for the first time as president, he wanted to uh, convey a almost said a sermon, wow, no. He wanted to convey a speech uh, that united the nation and kind of brought together those who uh, had not been for him being elected. And he said something in that speech that many of us have heard many times, one of the most iconic lines from presidential inauguration speech ever, and probably I can see nodding heads, you could probably say it. At one point in that speech, John F. Kennedy said to the American people, he said, ask not what your country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country. It's a great line and, and there's some deep spiritual truth to that line, not the country part, but if we put God in there and I'm not saying, I'm not saying John F. Kennedy was deeply spiritual. Don't, I'm not, don't conflate that. I'm just saying that there's a message that the message a uh, part of the message of the Bible is that very line that, that he gave us the message partly of the, the new Testament is don't come to God asking what can God do for me, but come to God saying, what can I do for God? Because our, our natural inclination is to want things. Our natural inclination is, what can I get out of this? And, you know, again, that's like, that's how I approach literally every situation in my life. So I'm, I'm right there with you. I'm not coming down on anybody. Our natural inclination is to say, I need some things. And, and, and so what can I get out of this? And so how do many of us approach God? Many of us approach God in the way that the chief priests and the scribes and Judas did. We come with a bunch of expectations, right? So we come in and we're like, okay, here's what I know. You're the sovereign of all creation. You're the Lord of Lords, King of Kings. Everything is yours. You own the cattle on a thousand hills. I am your adopted, beloved child. You see me in the same way that you see Jesus after his finished work on the cross. And so, you're a good dad. You tell me in your book that you give good gifts to your children. And so, God, I need some good gifts. Right? I, I have some health issues. And the doctors can't figure it out but you made the doctors you made me you can figure it out right god my mom has health issues my dad has health issues my child god forbid my child has health issues god don't you love us don't you love me here are the things i need from you i have financial needs i have uh relational needs i don't have a good i need a boyfriend i need a girlfriend i need a husband or a wife my marriage is not good i i my, my relationship with my parents is not good God, you can fix those things, right? Because you're the God of the universe. I, I need a new house. I need a new car. I need a new job. Like, we, we come and we're like, you're the good God who can do anything, all powerful. I need a lot of help. So let's get these things figured out. And then what happens? Sometimes he does it. But sometimes he doesn't. And where does that put us? In the exact same place as the chief priests, the scribes, and Judas. Unmet expectations. We have expectations from God and he doesn't meet them. And so where do we go? Kind of down the same path that these folks did. We're like, wait, are you really all powerful? Are you really a good father? Do you really love me the way that you say you do? Are you really the one true God? Because I feel like if you were, all these things would be taken care of and they're not. And so not literally, but figuratively, we're like, well, we need to take your life because you're not meeting my expectations. In my experience, the number one reason for friends and people I've known who have walked away from their faith is exactly what we're talking about right now. It's unmet expectations because some of us approach God looking to take. And can I just close with this before we move on to the second point? Is it possible that the problem is not with Jesus, but with our expectations. Some of us come to Jesus looking to take. Now, the other thing that we see in this passage, the meat or the tofu, is that some of us come to Jesus looking to give. Some of us come to Jesus looking to give. So we have the chief priests and the scribes and, the, and, uh, and Judas, almost said Pharisees. They just get such a bad rap, we just throw them in everywhere, but they weren't in this passage. And then in the middle, we get uh, this just beautiful story of this woman anointing Jesus with this expensive bottle of perfume. Um, So what do we know? Jesus and his disciples presumably are at a house party uh, in a town called Bethany, right outside the city of Jerusalem, they're at the house of Simon the leper. Uh, Pretty safe to assume that Simon the former leper, because if he was an active leper, they wouldn't have been at his house. Uh, and very possible that or, or we don't know but but possible that jesus healed him and so they're at they're at a house party at, at this house of simon the leper pick me up in verse three while he was at bethany in the house of simon the leper as he was reclining at table a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard very costly and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. So this unnamed woman comes in and performs this beautiful act. Now, I want to pause right here at, uh, at who this woman is. This is a little bit of a excursus, but it is so cool. So uh, Mark doesn't give us the name of who this woman is. We're at Simon the leper's house. But those of you who know your Bible will know that in the gospel of John, John describes a very, very similar situation in Bethany, at the house of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And John actually names the woman who anoints Jesus and says, it's Mary. Mary who sat at Jesus' feet. Mary who wept at the death of her brother Lazarus and said, Jesus, can you raise my brother? And he did raise her brother. So, so a lot of people come to the Bible and they're like, part of the reason I can't believe the Bible is because of all these discrepancies. Like it doesn't, it doesn't line up. The, the, the gospel writers don't agree, but, but check this. Why? Well, We're going to have to go way back, some of you. Remember when we started this series, we talked about some of the things, uh, some of the defining characteristics of the gospel of Mark. We said it was the shortest gospel. We said it was the easiest to understand. It was the simplest. And we said most scholars believe that the gospel of Mark is the first, remember this? The first gospel that was written. Most scholars believe the gospel of Mark was written somewhere between 50 and 70 AD. We're in about 30 AD in the moment that we're talking about right here with Jesus being anointed. John, most scholars believe, was the last gospel written somewhere between 90 and 100 A.D. So we're talking about a span of 20 to 50 years between the writing of the two gospels. What is happening in this moment with this woman anointing Jesus with oil is extremely controversial. You see, Jesus was claiming that he was the Christ, claiming that he was the Messiah. Do you know what Messiah comes from the Hebrew word Mashiach? You know what that word means literally and what Christ means literally? The anointed one. And here's this woman coming in and anointing the one who has called himself the anointed one before he is to go to the cross. So when Mark is writing his gospel, she's still alive. Probably the early church knows who she is. And probably if he named her, that could be dangerous for her because there probably were authorities who would not be happy to know that she had done this. By the time we get to John, some 20 or 50 years later, she's died or she's moved away or the, dif- the, the danger has passed. And so John feels he can name who it is. So we believe this woman, scholar- some, no, I shouldn't say that universal. Not everyone does. Many scholars believe that this is Mary who is anointing Jesus, the, the, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, the same Mary that John describes in his gospel. And maybe Simon the leper was their dad. We're not for sure. But just because the Bible doesn't look like it harmonizes, there actually might be really good reasons when you dig into it as to why there might be some discrepancies. So here, here's Jesus at this house party. Uh, Mary come, Mary's there. Mary comes in with this, uh, this flask, this super expensive flask, and she anoints him. And she's making a statement about who he is. He says, this is preparing me for my burial. Some of them probably didn't know what he was talking about in that moment. But I want to talk about that flask for a minute. We're told in the text that it was worth more than 300 denarii. A denarius was a day's wage for a laborer. So this bottle of ointment, nard, perfume, whatever it was, was worth more than a year's salary for the average worker in Israel at that time. But she was a woman, and so almost certainly she could not have gotten a job that paid her that well. And so what most scholars believe is that she didn't work for a few years to save up for this, but that this was a family heirloom. This was likely something that had been passed down to her. And almost undoubtedly, it is the most valuable thing in her possession. And, and notice what she does. She comes to Jesus and she pops the cork and pours out a drop or two and makes a cross on his forehead. No. What does she do? What does the text tell us that she does? She breaks the jar. She smashes it. She empties the entire contents On Jesus. She doesn't hold anything back. She gives everything she had. Remember a few weeks ago, a few weeks ago, the the poor widow at the temple, the two copper coins, what did she give? Everything that she had. What does Mary give in this moment? A little bit, part of it, some of it. She breaks it so there's no going back. She gives everything that she had. And how did the other guests respond? Verses four and five. Uh, This is presumably, John makes it clear that Judas is one of them, so presumably some of the disciples in here. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. They dress her down in front of Jesus. And this is what's kind of shocking when you think about what they're actually saying. What were they saying to her? He's not worth it. He's not not worthy of that. That was too extravagant. That was too costly he's not worth it and what was mary who's coming to jesus saying what can i give what was mary saying in her action he's worthy of it all he's worthy of it all because some of us come to jesus looking to give when i was in uh when i was in high school i was not allowed to date which in hindsight was a really good thing and uh, let's keep it real. <laughs> the girls were not knocking down the doors of the Anderson house, trying to get trying to get to me. So it wasn't that big of a deal anyway. Uh, but my junior year, I was 16. I um, had a little crush on a on a girl, and found out through the grapevine that that was maybe a little bit reciprocal. And she was a youth group girl, and it seemed like you know it seemed like all on the up and up. And so, very reluctantly, uh, I got my parents to agree to allow me to take her on a date. And you know those shows, uh, I'm thinking of The Office right now, you know those shows that make you, they, they can create a scene that makes you so uncomfortable watching it, even though you know it's made up. If, if we could watch a video of that date right now, you would all just be like, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to stay in the room, but you would all be like, this is, this is more uncomfortable than I can bear in this moment. I was 16, just got my driver's license. It was winter in Cleveland, you know, I think January, February. Uh, I went to pick her up in the family minivan which was I think like an 88 or an 89 Dodge Caravan with racing stripes down the side. I mean, it was sweet. <laughs> um, and I, I picked her up at her house, and we had there's a chain of drive-in burger places in Northeast Ohio called Swenson's. It's legendary. If you're ever in Cleveland or Akron, I don't know why you'd be there, but if you are, Swenson's Drive-In Burgers, they're, they're, like a, they're an iconic place in Northeast Ohio, but it's a drive-in burger place. Like you don't get, you, you pull into a, po- a spot, you back into your spot, you turn on your lights, the guy runs out, takes your order, brings back your food, you eat it in the car, and you go. And I was like, this is the place I need to take this girl. So we're in the family minivan, take her to Swenson's. Um, it's, a, you know, as awkward as you think it was, it was more awkward than that. Uh, you know, I, I had no idea what I was doing. And uh, we got burgers, fries, that was it, took her home, never took her out again, uh, you know, obviously that wasn't going anywhere. I maybe, I don't know exactly what it was, I maybe spent $12 on that date. Certainly didn't pay my dad back for the gas, uh, but a couple of burgers, couple of fries, couple of milkshakes, you know, 20 years ago, 24 years ago, uh, maybe, maybe it was 10 or 12 bucks. Fast forward, seven years to 2005, Valentine's Day weekend, 2005. Uh, I was freshly out of college. I was working my first job for a hardwood lumber exporter, importer in Buffalo, New York. My girlfriend at the time was working in Chicago. Uh, every two or three weekends, we would meet at my parents' house in Cleveland for the weekend. So I'd drive three hours from Buffalo. She'd take the one hour flight from Chicago or drive the six hours, better if she flew. So, Valentine's Day weekend, 2005, we meet at my parents' house, get in late Friday night. Four o'clock in the morning, Saturday morning, uh, I open the door to the guest room, which is where my girlfriend was staying. Uh, I flip on the lights. You know, it's dark, it's cold, uh, she's under the covers. I shake her awake and I'm like, pack your bag for a day trip. Meet me downstairs in 10 minutes. She's you know, groggy out of it, it's four in the morning. She, she pulls herself together, meets me downstairs. I drive her to the Akron Cannon Airport, never show her the boarding passes. We go through security. She doesn't know until we're getting on the plane that we're heading to New York City. So we fly to New York City, take a cab into Manhattan, stop for bagels on the way in. We do all the touristy stuff, Times Square, Empire State Building, Rockefeller Center, had the world's best pizza for lunch. Uh, and then we had an appointment, a, a, a reservation uh, at the Plaza Hotel, Home Alone 2, Plaza Hotel for high tea. So we go to high tea at the Plaza Hotel in the afternoon. We're sitting there in the packed ballroom at the Plaza Hotel. Uh, a bouquet of flowers arrives which I had ordered ahead of time. I meet the delivery person out in the lobby. I tell her I'm going to the bathroom. I I go out, uh, I get the bouquet of flowers. I pull a little ring out of my pocket and I tie it to that bouquet of flowers. Then I go back and sit down and the flowers get delivered. And as she's reading the card, she recognizes that there's a ring attached to the flowers. And as she recognizes that, I drop to one knee right there in the Plaza Hotel and I ask her to marry me. And she says, yes, and the entire ballroom explodes in applause for these two young knuckleheads who just got engaged. One young knucklehead. We go outside, we catch a horse-drawn carriage for a ride through Central Park while she calls her family. We take a cab back to the airport, fly back to Cleveland that night. Somebody said it. (laughs) It's a true true story. spent nine, better part of nine months eating ramen and peanut butter and jelly (laughs) and living in, in a co-worker's musty moldy basement for free so that I could save every penny possible to put towards that ring. It was by far the most expensive thing I had ever bought in my life up to that point. Two tickets to New York City, cab rides, tourist stuff, you know, $80 or whatever it was to go to the top of the Empire State Building, tea at the Plaza Hotel, da 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 Why? Because she was worthy of it all. Why, why, why do I draw out this contrast between the cheap date in high school and the pretty expensive date seven years later? Because, and this is not always true, but very often it is, the value of a gift reflects the value of the one receiving it. It is not that I thought lowly of that girl that I took out in high school. I just didn't understand, you know, I just didn't value her that much. Beth Wells, she was worth more than I even gave her because the value of a gift reflects, at least at some level, the value of the one who that gift is being given to. So if I can just circle back to what we started with tonight, are you a taker? or are you a giver? When it comes to Jesus, are you looking to take from Jesus or are you looking to give to Jesus? Some of us approach him like the chief priests and the scribes and Judas, what can I get out of this? Some of us approach him like Mary saying, what can I possibly give you that is worthy of you? Now, here's the deal. If you're like me, you're probably sitting here being like, what do I possibly have that could reflect the value of the savior of the world? right what do you give the person who has everything you know he's he owns the sun the moon and the stars he owns creation and every the cattle on a thousand hills what could i possibly give to jesus that he would want from me he he he, he doesn't want your jewelry he doesn't want your perfume or your cologne even if it's chanel number 5 he doesn't want your bracelets He doesn't want your cars. He doesn't want your inheritance. He doesn't want your family heirlooms. You know what he wants? He wants you. You are the gift of supreme value. You are the gift of exceeding worth. You are the gift that is worthy of the one who died to ransom your life. And he knows if he gets you, he gets all that other stuff with you. Are we coming to Jesus looking to take or are we coming to Jesus looking to give? I'm gonna invite the the worship team back up as I wrap this up. Take a penny or give a penny. Here's what's so amazing about Jesus is he came to earth not to take all of our pennies. He came to give us all of his pennies. And part of why Mary, I believe, gave that such a lavish gift to Jesus is because she had caught a picture of what he had done for her. Not only did he raise her brother from the dead, but he loved her, he communed with her. She knew what his love for her was. And, and, and in some way, we don't know that, I don't know that she knew he was going to go to the cross, but in some way she knew there was more coming. And that is why she gave him such a lavish, overwhelming gift. It's the last stanza of the great hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, says this. It says, we're the whole realm of nature mine. That were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. Let's pray. God, we live in a world that teaches us to simply take. That, that constantly is, is, is implanting in our heads and in our hearts, get yours, get yours, get yours. And yet you call us to live countercultural lives. You call us to live lives of giving, not taking. And the only way we can do that, God, is if you do a work in our hearts. If you, if you reorder our disordered loves. And so we ask God that you would help us to love you more and love the world less. We ask that you would help us to have eyes for you and not eyes for the things that are around us. We ask, God, that you would transform our hearts such that we find our our hope, our joy, our peace, our satisfaction, our completion, our fulfillment in you and you alone. And not in all the things that this world promises can, can give us those things, but certainly cannot. We ask that we would be marked by lives of giving. And I pray, God, that you would allow us through the power of your spirit to give our, li- our very selves to you and your kingdom and your mission here on earth. Thank you for who you are. May this word, um, may your words tonight sink deep into our hearts and minds. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, we are now gonna transition to our time of communion. And uh, as we do, I just want to uh, remind us that this is the moment where we memorialize what Jesus was preparing for when Mary anointed him Uh, at that house party in Bethany. Jesus died on a cross in our place so that you and I might have our relationship with God restored and we might spend eternity with him. And before we went to the cross, as Jesus was in the upper room with his disciples, he instituted this uh, sacrament whereby uh, we have been given by him a means to remember what it is that he has done for us. So as we come to the communion table, can I just uh, remind us that scripture is clear that the partaking of communion is for those who have decided to make Jesus Christ Lord and savior of your life. So if that's not you, I would just invite you to not partake in communion with us tonight, uh, this evening, this afternoon. But if that is you, I would also say there is no better moment than right now to make the decision to give your life to Jesus. I would love to talk to you about it. One of our elders who's here, any one of our ministry leaders, we would love to talk to you about that. We're going to sit quietly for a few moments to prepare our hearts as uh, Joseph plays on the on the keys, and then I will lead us in taking the bread and the cup together in just a few moments. Please take the bread and hear these words from the Apostle Paul. He said, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take and eat. same way he also took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup you proclaim the lord's death until he comes take and drink He's worthy of it all. Amen. Receive the benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace until we meet again or until our savior comes and then forever. You are loved and you're prayed for and you're sent. Amen.